I think that's a great expression on your knees. I felt on my knees yeah. for long periods of time and and I was desperate for it to end and to be over and I did wonder and I say that loving the, the two men involved but it was horrendously painful for everyone involved horrendously painful um and so I produced this book of poetry maybe because I, I think I wrote the book of poetry because I wasn't going to be able to write anything else until this was done. Hello and welcome. My name is Liz Gleeson and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from international guests who share their unique experience of grief. These stories are shared with the wish that you, the listener, may find some comfort, hope and solidarity and maybe also the realisation that you're not alone in your grief. Each time you listen, please do support the podcast by donating on the website shapesofgrief.com or by becoming a patron on patreon.com. It's a privilege to hold these conversations and I extend my deepest gratitude to all my guests for showing up in this particular way. It truly is a gift. Welcome back to Shapes of Grief, everybody. And I'm completely thrilled to be joined today by poet and writer Mary Canelli. Mary, you're so welcome. Thanks, Liz. Mary sent me her book. Uh, it's called Into the Grey. It's a new collection of poems about your two uncles. Nobody has ever contacted me before about the grief when an uncle dies. And it made me realize that similar to sibling loss, <gasps> It's quite a disenfranchised grief and an unacknowledged grief. I think it is because um, in the case of my two uncles, one was a priest, um, so he didn't have a family. So, um, you know, wh what do you do when somebody doesn't have a daughter or a son who is next of kin? You know, somebody steps in, somebody, you know, is there because there's, there's still family, you know. Um, and in the case of my other uncle, he had one child who herself was not in a position to look after him. He was set, divorced, actually. So, again, he was also on his own. So what do you do? And they became a very big part of my life as they needed more care. Yeah. And it sounds like I, I read the book in its entirety this morning, Mary. Um, and as I said to you before I pressed record, it was responsible for a very wet face <laughs> in this house this morning. I um, once had sorted out my kids. I actually made a cup of coffee, grabbed your book, which arrived in the post today, and I climbed back under the duvet. And um, my 15-year-old came in at one stage. She's like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> Some, somebody asked me why poetry. Now, I, I tend to write mainly poetry, but it lends itself this particular book because actually I wouldn't recommend anyone do it the way you did it it is a little bit heavy and oppressive whereas it, it lends itself it's a thing like grief which needs to be eaten in small bites mm. um you know and, and I, it lends itself to that actually I, I I didn't find it maybe that's just me but I didn't find it heavy or oppressive at all it was like you completely got the finger and pointed right on the point on on the little part of a, of of me that has felt all of these things. Actually, this could have mm. been me writing this, except I don't have your eloquence. 
I've had all of these experiences. Yeah. But to see someone else write your lived experience that you've maybe never vocalized with somebody else um, is amazing. It's like it's so validating and it's such an acknowledgement. Um, like I literally used up practically a whole pad of post-its this morning. <laughs> and I don't know how we're actually going to manage the next hour because <laughs> there's so much that I want to talk to you about. Yeah. Um and, and I suppose for me as well, I don't, you probably don't know this, but my father died in last year in March and he had dementia. Um, and yeah. so there's so much that resonated with me. This I'm is so such a gift. I'm so struck, Liz. Um, I suppose to say, first of all, when the boys, my boys, as I call them, um, when they were in the nursing home, I stopped writing and I think that's something to do with the nature of grief and in particular grief, the grieving that goes on when you have somebody, whether it's dementia or whether it's another long term illness that is terminal, um, when you are walking through a really difficult time. Well, there was just no room in me for for creative writing. There was no part of me that could stand back and look at it objectively. You know, I just had to live it. Um, and then after Brendan died, Brendan was the second of the two to die. And he died just last October. And suddenly it was like <sighs> opening the floodgates and, and this came out. But I did actually, I, I, I worried a little bit about whether uh, I had two main worries about in, in writing this. One is, my God, would anyone want to read this? Because, it, you know, but the second was um, I didn't want to feel that I was intruding into the experience that John and Brendan had, that I was betraying their privacy, if you like, because the funny thing about dementia, we do tend to be very protective of our people with dementia. We do tend to, to I don't know, hide is the right word, but to allow them to fade a little bit into the background so they're not totally exposed as, as they decline. Um, but I really looked at it and, and, and I just said, somebody has to write this because family after family after family goes through this and it's silent and it is a little bit hidden. And what I have been so struck by is, um, you know, we launched it last week and, and there were people they're crying. I had asked um, the Minister for Education actually uh, launched it, but um, John McDonough, who had done the forward and is a, a senior lecturer in English, English in Mary I, and, and John, I know him for years and he knew Brendan also. Um, so I thought he would be a good person to come along in the day and speak as well. Um, he didn't talk. I, I, I was expecting something academic on, on the nature of poetry. You know, he talked about his dad who has dementia. Um, the, my editor talked about his gran who has dementia. So I think it just like if it's worth anything, that's the worth of it is here I am just saying this is what it was like to love people, in my case, two at the same time, to love someone who has dementia and who's disintegrating in front of you. It's it's such a service, Mary. And I think at the heart of everything I do, it's all about the people, the humans, mm -hmm. the relationships. And, you know, I, I was t teaching a group of GPs one day last year and it was like, how, you know, coming across loss and grief in practice and maybe giving them a little bit of an overview and how grief can affect the body. 
And, you know, I started off with my credentials and then, and I'm also bereaved, my dad died three months ago. And that was the permission for them to also be a human in that moment and not just a GP or like you say, not just an academic, you know? And that's where, you know, the, the, the magic is. Um, there's, so, there's so many ways we could do this and you've written a book of poetry. Can we start right there? And I wanted to ask you, would you read out Into the Grey, the poem, if you'd be willing, and then maybe we could have a chat about it. I will, of course. Um, so this is called Into the Grey. Until I walked the road, I did not see the ruin, hidden, almost swallowed whole by thorns. No windows, roof or doors remain. A one-time home, disintegrating stone by stone. You were once my shelter and my rest, but now our bond is frayed by your crumbling mind and bones. I'm increasingly alone and left exposed as you descend ever further into the grey, day by day by day. Profound loss can rock our inner world. It's confusing, life-altering and often scary. You've probably already figured out that there are no stages of grief. But are there other models, theories, tools or practices that can help us to navigate the grieving process? To learn more, visit shapesofgrief.com. As Liz says, the more people who are grief trained, the more supportive and compassionate our society will be. And that will make life so much better for anyone coping with loss and grief. Now, let's get you back to the podcast. It, it brought to mind a friend of mine who brought her parents to Bloom at the weekend. And um, I said, oh, how did your mum get on? Her mum has Alzheimer's. She said she didn't really notice. Yeah. You know, and it's this woman who was her harbour and her rest. Mm. And the ambiguous loss of this, they're alive, but they're also not there. The person you knew is not there anymore. Would you speak about that ambiguous loss a little bit, Mary, what it was for you? Um, well, I suppose I'll start by saying that the book is divided into a series of sections. You know, now there are two very tiny sections, but the two main sections, one is called John and one is called Brendan, because there are different forms of dementia and dementia takes different shapes. Um, for me, John, who was the, the priest, uh, we were extremely close and I always knew that when the time came, if, if he was to die before me, I would be involved in his care. Um, Brendan was <laughs> came from left to the field. I could, you know, I didn't think I would be involved in his care. Mm. He obviously had a life in Dublin. I mean, I'm talking about Brendan Kennelly, the poet, as well. Um, he had his own life in Dublin, and and the way in which I realised that these absolute giants of my childhood had were were getting into trouble was quite different, because with Father John, it was that day by day by day and um suddenly you you would almost and that's why I called it into the gray because the idea of something that would come almost as a, a gentle cloud in the beginning which would thicken into a mist where you could hardly see the person 
after a while. Um, you know, it took a long time with Father John for me, for the people around to admit what was going on. It took him a long time to admit what was going on because it was so gradual, because we could pretend for yeah. a while, you know. Um, with Brendan, he was away and we, well, we began to get phone calls saying, why aren't you looking after him? Don't you know he's in trouble? Don't you know he's... And so with Brendan, by the time we got involved in his care, there was no denying. He was still trying to deny, funnily enough. But, um, and that's where a lot of protection came in. We mm. put safeguards around him to allow him to deny until he was happy to, and you to talk, acknowledge. you talk there about the shock in his eyes as he's yeah. looking for words. And it's, and, and I don't remember which poem it was in, but you talk about, God, not you too. You know, yeah. this sudden shock, yeah. of, gosh, is this going to happen again? Yeah. That took you by surprise that he would have dementia. Well, in fact... It was like it was like the, the voyage of the damned because uh, it's a scary thing, um, and it's not and it's, talked about a lot, no, Mary. No, it's not talked about, and um, like I assume there must be a genetic component in my family. So I know myself and two other cousins, three other cousins who were very involved in the care of their parents, or I had a cousin who was very involved in John and Brendan's care with me. And sometimes we sit around and we're all in our fifties now saying, oh, is this going to happen to us? You know, it's so, I mean, there, there are so many layers of tragedy and layers of silence in this. And at the center of it all is this person that you're mm. losing. Um, the best way I can put it, I, I do call them my boys um, because they became like children yeah. um, down to having to hold their hand um, and make sure Brendan in particular could be a, a devil when he wanted and just make sure that he didn't go off and do something we were all going to end up in jail over. And um, or, um, <laughs> you know, towards the end, they were like babies in a in a bed. They were not um, verbal. They were not um, uh, able to walk. They were not able to manage movement themselves. They required complete care towards the end. So, and and not everybody has that. And I suppose I just want to be careful that my experience isn't going to be everybody's experience. There's a spectrum of possibilities there. Yeah, yeah, I'm laughing yeah. there. There was one poem that did make me laugh out loud. I'm just trying to find it here. When you said you were lucky Brendan wasn't uh, arrested. When you talk about his car, um, yeah. the black shiny car. Oh, um, uh, that was actually John's car. That oh, was it? Very, I just said the most. Yeah, Brendan couldn't drive, which is hilarious because a lot of people will know he did a car out many, many years ago, but he was not able to drive. So uh, John's one is under a misfortunate car. And actually, uh, the reason yeah. I, I wrote this poem is because I suppose I was writing immediately after Brendan had died. John died in August of 2020 and Brendan died in October of 2021. And after John died, I had tried to write and I wrote some poems, but it just it wasn't happening. And Brendan was getting sicker. And so I got, you know, uh, taken up with that. Um, and the poems just rushed out because I hadn't been able to grieve for the one with the process of the other. Do you know, mm -hmm. um, it, I, I, I think my grief came 
in October 2021 for both of them because that's yeah. the time that I could rest and that's the time that I could say so one of the problems was I, I suppose I, I found it hard to remember the nicer things or the funnier things yeah. and so I really had to sit down and and one of the funniest things of all is that poor old John bought this lovely car about two years before he went into the nursing home and he crashed that car so many times and then he gave it to my father who continued to crash it can I just tell you so anyway this is called do you want me to read it for you please do under under misfortune at star nothing too big or flashy would have suited you but you loved it when you bought it black and shiny and new and while such a thing may not be possible for a lifeless object such as a car, that poor machine must have been assembled under a most misfortunate star. Was there a wall or a car or a thorny bush that was safe as you drove that car around? Because it wasn't for the want of trying that you didn't mow them down. Did ever a month go by, I wonder, when we didn't hide some scrapes or tape together broken bumpers and towards the end did even a week escape. Funny then how that car got the last laugh in an ending I did not foresee. When you do, when your doctor put you off the road you finally accepted you could no longer live alone. Thank you. Okay. The, the the poem that came before that insurmountable um was actually the first one that brought a tear to my eye and it was when you were describing john trying to get down the stairs and your son stepped in uh this this boy or young man a few words and offered his back and gave mm -hmm. his great uncle a piggyback down the stairs there was something about the passage of time or handing over to the next generations or yeah, I, 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 and and I think that's I I like that poem. Obviously, my son makes it, who's a great big prop, play, a rugby playing prop. So he had the back for it, but um, and I'm very tiny. I'm I'm five foot two, and and my husband is six four, and my boys are all over six foot. So there's just me, and then these monsters living in the house. But, um. I think a lot of families, we we have to learn ways to make do. So Father John used to come to my house every Sunday and the boys would go in most Saturdays or sometimes he would come here Saturday. But um, my, he went to my mom's house then um, during the week for his dinner and my aunt went to see him every night. So we were hobbling together a system, you know. Um, my house isn't ideal. It's it's built on a series of levels. There are steps up to it. There are steps within it to the bathroom and things like that. Um, and he just was getting to a stage where we couldn't really manage him. And then Matthew just came up with this idea of how he was going to handle it. And, and it was just such an organic thing. We weren't, oh, how are we going? Nobody sat down and discussed how we would handle it. And I think with dementia, for a long time, that's how families have to manage. That as the difficulty comes, we just kind of mooch in and try and put something in place. Um, and we keep doing that until we can't do it anymore, I guess. Um, so. 
there's another one that ra that resonated. I mean, they all resonated with me at some level. But did you know, and this is a poem that I really could feel you in it, Mary. Um, I don't want to do this poem any disservice by reading it. So I'm going to ask you to please read it again. And maybe we can talk about what's in there. But it's certainly, okay. yeah, it, it brought up a lot of memories for me as well. Okay, this is called Did You Know? With that habit of mine for taking charge, did I take too much too soon? If I had known what was right to do, was there more life you could have held? Did you see the struggle in my heart when I upset your calm, not meaning to? Did you know I always tried my best? Did you know that I loved you? Um, and it's a bit, um, many years ago, I had a, a friend whose son committed suicide. And I know that what she lived with for years and years was the not knowing and the questions that arise that you can't answer. Um, dementia is a little bit like that because there are so, you know, we do our best. Um, we try um, and, and you don't know because the person is no longer able to tell you if and, and I suppose the end. And the reason that poem ends the way it does is whatever about any of the other decisions we took and with both John and Brendan, we tried to allow them. I mean, I wasn't their daughter, so we, we tried to allow them to be involved as they could in their decisions for as long as they could be. But a time came, of course, when they were not able to make decisions that were difficult decisions. Mm. And I suppose for me, all I want to know is that they understood, both of them understood that I loved them, mm. right, right to the end. Mm. It's so evident in this, in this collection. I found myself really envious, actually, of the, <laughs> the love that so clearly was a, a two-way or a three-way thing between mm. you and your uncles. Um, as someone who had, I had so many uncles, I think my mother was the youngest of nine girls and I didn't have any relationship really to talk about yeah. with any of them and here you have this incredible these benevolent beings you say it somewhere I'm sure I'll come up to it but um the way you describe them these benign caring wise beings mm. that were there and you insinuate in one of the poems that you were a wild teen and that they sort of had had your back. Would you speak a little bit about that? Maybe maybe you can tell me which one that is. Um, uh, I, I I think that's one of John's, and uh, that, that's John. Certainly, John and I would have. Um, I suppose we we're just very close from a very young age. He got me reversal. Um, reversal. Uh, he it. got me. He got me. Um, you know, he understood me as I was growing up. And I think that allowed me to understand him as he was falling apart, I think, you know. That's, um, that's all any human longs for is to be understood, to be seen and understood by someone I, in the world. I think so. And, and I suppose I'll just say that, uh, and I, I'll read this poem for you in a minute, but um, I will just say that both of them COVID affected 
both of them. And that was such a tragedy for us in mm. terms of, like when language had failed, I would sing or I would, uh, you know, just rub their hands or just, and, and when that failed, like, I mean, in the first lockdown, we went from the beginning of March to the following, oh, I think October, before we were in a room with them again. And they were different people at that stage. They had advanced so much um, into the gray at that stage. Anyway, this is called reversal. When black was white and white, sorry, when black was black and white was white, there was you and me and there was certainty. I was the only mutable thing reaching for the truth inside my chrysalis, becoming who I was meant to be. To me, you were as constant and as warming as the sun. Your hands tried to hold me steady when I was a child. Your voice sang for me and carried your wisdom when I sought to test everything by running wild. Now that black is white and white is black, the adult me must help you walk and steady you. I hold your hand and rub your back. I chase away your fears. And when you're lost, I try to reach and rescue you. I think about the safest things for us to do and say. I sing and coo and mother you as if you were my own. Now black and white are swirled into the grey. I am the protector, you the vulnerable one. Yeah. That um, it, it's like birth and like death. You know, I remember when my daughter was born, I thought, I don't love you because I don't know you, but boy, would I kill for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. um, I was yeah. that the real mammalian, you know? Yeah. And then when, when my father was dying, it was that sense of, you know, I was like a, a cheetah protecting him yeah. and making yeah. sure that, you know, everything that was administered was proper and correct or that nothing that wasn't needed was administered as well. Tell yeah, us a little I, bit about that for you, Mary. Well, certainly it was. We were very, very fortunate, and I will say that. And 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 that links into the the last poem in the book, which is called "Thank You," because, um, the book is, and I never had any doubt about this. People say, "Aren't you very good?" And I don't feel that way. I I feel that John and Brendan were able to. They would really want to thank both of the, the care homes that looked after them. Um, it took me a long time to be able to express what was so exceptional about them, but I think I have it now, um, or a way to try to explain it. Um, I, I, was, I was there with John one day, um, and the same would have happened with Brendan, and, and somebody came in, and it was long beyond a time when, when they were leaving the nursing home or were managing the day-to-day. -day. And uh, I can't remember if it was John or Brendan, but one of the care staff said to me, John, so actually said to John, John, shall we tell Mary that you need to get new vests? And to me, that 100% explains what was so exceptional about the two nursing homes. They saw the dignity of the person when the dignity had almost disappeared they saw that these people had been adults had been you know uh, both very intelligent very 
uh, formidable men in their own ways. Um, and they saw that it wasn't okay to diminish them more than they had already been diminished. Um, and, and for me, so having that when COVID came was massive, knowing that safely we could trust the people there mm. to hold their hand and to look after them when we couldn't do it. Mm. Um, and I understood why we couldn't, but it was incredibly painful. And I think up and down this country, there are people who have gone through that experience now because of COVID and the sundering and the pain of it. Um, John died during a COVID lockdown. I mean, I went in, gowned up, um, Bridget and I took turns. Um, my dad and my aunt would come in, but they, they weren't staying on, on their own with him. Bridget and I would, would come in um, and, and uh, you know, all gowned up and all, and, and we hadn't maybe touched him for months before that and and there was such beauty and dignity in the way the nursing home did allow us in and did allow us to touch him as he was dying and the same with Brenda and the same with Brenda. It makes such a difference and I think there isn't an episode that doesn't go by where I don't reflect on the truth that people can profoundly exacerbate a difficult situation or profoundly ease a difficult situation. Yeah. And to know that somebody is loving and respecting and caring for our loved ones, it's like they get it. You, you, there was something that reminded me actually of a John O'Donoghue poem. I think when you're talking about Brendan, um, John O'Donoghue's poem is on grief. And he talks about nobody knows what's been taken from you. But the poem of yeah. yours that reminded me, you said it in a very different way it's called After, it's towards the end of your book. And you said, is it okay if I read that bit quickly? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, Memories of warmth and wisdom and mischief, but also some shadows make up the man I knew. So different from that other man, the world believes it knows. Mm. It's like, you know, the world knows the poet, Brendan Canelli, but your uncle was someone else. Will you was, tell was us? Somebody different. Yeah. For you. Yeah. Somebody different. Yeah. You. Yeah. And I, I think actually, um, and, and this is also something uh, which I think you have to live through to really understand. Um, there is a real privilege in being allowed to be part of somebody's end of days or terminal illness. My, my father-in-law actually died of motor neuron disease. Um, so, so we had that sense as well, you know, um, and that was a real privilege. And the funny thing about, uh, Father John was a parish priest, and so he would have been um, quite proper and reserved in his dealings with a lot of people um, and he was owned by the public you know even after he retired mm. he was conscious of, of playing a role if you like um, he'd been gone from home for a very long time Brendan had belongs to the and, and quite rightly he, he wrote his poetry and he gave it to the world and he wanted the world to know it and he belongs to the world now but there was such a privilege in having, it was like getting them returned, if I could put it like that. They were given back to us for the period while they were ill. And they were human beings to us. Mm. They weren't, you know, they weren't a poet and a priest. They were John and Brendan. They were 
my people. <laughs> and, uh, and, and there was a privilege to that, actually, and mm. a real intimacy. Mm. I love that notion of them being given back because there is a lot, there is a, a loss with anybody who's anyway in the public eye. Mm. It's like, yeah, claims on them in a way. Um, but they came back to family, back to the, the bosom of family. Yeah. You describe a moment where Brendan tells you to fuck off. <laughs> I, I, I do, because I tell you, Brendan was an awful scamp, um, which was something that I loved about him. Um, you know, uh, it, it was when he went silent, it was much more difficult than when he was being a rogue but anyway this is called stop it and i'll read a few i i'd say one thing brendan had a real difficulty with connections so he always knew who i was i got this beautiful smile i mean his beautiful smile when i would go to take him for a drive and he couldn't be taken out enough i mean seven days a week was not enough to go driving and uh, but I would get the smile and he, I would say it's Mary. I, I just I wouldn't make him guess. I'd say, hi, Brendan, it's Mary. And he knew he knew me and I know he knew he was safe with me. But he didn't actually know how he knew me. So I might have been his niece or his daughter or his mother or his aunt or his sister or, you know, or just the nice strange lady that came on Saturdays to take him driving you know but um he came up with which i thought was hilarious he came up with his own name for me um and that is what he called me until he couldn't speak anymore so this is called stop it one day you told me to fuck off when i told you to stop it in vain then you laughed and did something outrageous just to hear me say stop it again some days you indulged me in thinking that I was perhaps getting through only to let loose with an almighty cracker and I'd throw a stop it at you. And to show me that I would not win as we played out our little game, you smiled when I came on that visit and stop it became my new name. <laughs> That's what he called me, he called me stop it. You know, and I suppose just to say, Brendan suffered from frontal lobe dementia. I mean, different types of dementia present their own challenges. John had vascular dementia, and so he would he would drop. It was like an elevator. You know, you could go in some days, and and he would have dropped, and he wouldn't recover from that drop. Mm. Brendan had um, frontal lobe dementia, so if he could think it. He thought it was okay to say it or to do it. Um, plus, he had that public profile, which I always felt was very tough on him because anyone else with frontal lobe dementia is allowed the privacy to be as as um, disinhibited as he was. Um, he wasn't, you know, there was a lot of protection that had to mm. go on around Brendan because I used to be literally terrified that we would end up on the front page of a newspaper sometimes yeah. with some of the things he could say or do you know but um, it's you it, know they were different yeah it's it's ironic it reminds me of that movie Iris is it um, the you know somebody whose whole identity is around how their mind works and how they express that yeah. Um, yeah. and then that that's that's where the focus becomes at end of life, the, the loss of that. My mm. father had vascular dementia as well, so similar to Father John. But I remember one day I had to pick something. I live in Wicklow and 
I had to pick something up at the north side of Dublin and I thought oh, I'll pick up dad and just bring him for the drive and he would rarely get out of the house so I picked him up in his carer and he was in really good form and we had great chats and we were laughing a lot and went to Ikea did a bit of shopping had dinner so this is great I haven't done this had a normal day with dad for a whole afternoon and uh, we're driving home hours later and he's in flying form and then he starts telling me about his daughter yeah. I thought, oh, Jesus, yeah. who has he caught us? <laughs> has been with him all day. And, you know, it wasn't the first time he used to often think that I was his sister, Jackie, and yeah. my aunt. And I'm wondering, do you remember the first time that you realised Brendan or John didn't know who you were? Uh, Brendan had tremendous... It, it was something, obviously, some part of the degeneration in his brain that meant he really struggled with connections. Mm. So um, I would, like he'd say, he'd kind of, um, I'd come and he'd, I could see his mouth forming the word Mary for, for a long time and then it wasn't, you know? And that's when I began to say, hi, Brendan, it's Mary. And it was, it's such a simple thing to do, you know, to just give them what they need. To, yeah. to carry on the conversation and he knew I was Mary and sometimes I would say you're my uncle and we were really fond of each other we were good friends when you were younger um but then he might like we had this um we would drive we had a kind of a, a route that we would drive every so often when I was feeling brave we'd I, we went across the ferry one day and that from Kerry to Clare now that just was not successful because he couldn't he, we had, had a really smooth crossing and he really couldn't grasp the fact that he had left the county and he he was you know so we learned certain things were successful and certain things weren't mm. so we actually drove around um a circuit of north Kerry through the same villages and through the and that's where we we began to script actually it was something that happened a lot and it became more important as as John and Brendan lost their language, having a script that was familiar. So I literally would have the same conversation, sing the same songs, you know, talk about the same people week after week after week so that, you know, they didn't have to. They knew their place in the script, if I put yeah. it like that. But Brendan will be driving around and he'd say, um, so I would have told him I was his niece and then he'd say, did you know my mother? I'd say, yes, I knew your mother. How did you know my mother? Well, she was my grandmother. Was she your grandmother? You know, he'd be amazed at that. Or I remember once, it's, it's kind of funny, I, we passed my mom and dad's house. I said, your brother Paddy lives in there. And I said, he's my father. And he said, oh yeah. He said, what's his wife like? And I said, I said, well, she's all right, you know. So <laughs> he said, do you know her? I said, yeah, I do know her. And he said, how do you know her? I said, she's my mother. So <laughs> he did, he just didn't get connections. So actually, almost with Brendan, it was easier to see where the deficits were. Father John knew me to the end, and actually, I, I will never forget the you know one of the last times I went in to see him, and he had you know that that first day when people kind of slip into um slip begin to really slip away and they don't speak anymore um and so I just came in and I just said hello father John and I just got this little smile you know so even though language was beyond him I choose I choose to believe 
um, that he he heard my voice, you know, and, and there's a poem in there in there called Lies. And actually, we do have to lie to ourselves, or at least I don't know if it's the truth or the lie. We tell ourselves things that make the tragedy of the loss bearable. Absolutely. Yeah. It's what gets us through is making meaning yeah. of it and finding yeah. meaning that helps us sit with it, sit, sit with the, the reality of what's happening. I remember my dad a few days before he died, um, you know, and it, it, it looked like he was not going to be talking to us again, you know, mm -hmm. and I actually it's one of the last things he said. Um, and I was there, I was with his carer and I, I had an appointment and I was kind of going, well, will I go or not? It was only an hour, but I still, you don't want to leave their side mm. when you know that death is imminent. And um, I remember the carer just saying to him again, really respectfully, Morris, will I put a sponge on your mouth? Are you, do you like a little bit of water? None, neither of us expecting a response, you know, and um, his mouth just opened and he just said, if you can spare it. <laughs> and the two of yeah. us just looked at each other he like he had a wicked sense of humor and we just burst out laughing but yeah, yeah I do yeah. believe you know um that there's they're so present until then until they're not you know? it, it, absolutely Brendan now thanks be to God the last thing he said to me wasn't the last thing the second last thing he said to me was not the last thing he said to me because it was a cracker well <laughs> But um, then, you know, uh, we'll say, I think he died on Sunday and probably on the Tuesday or the Wednesday, I was with him and he he did, he opened his eyes and he saw it. Now, I really don't know if he, if, if it was me he saw because he did say, just come here and he, his voice seemed filled with wonder. But on Thursday, by Thursday, he had definitely stopped speaking. And I assumed, I thought, that is it. And on Thursday, I, I was doing what I used to do with Father John. I used to just sit and read. And I was doing the same with Brendan. Um, with John, I, I used to read the Gospel of John because he loved it. Um, with Brendan, I was reading some of his own poems and some of my poems, just poetry for him because he'd always loved poetry. And suddenly this hand reached out and just grabbed mine so hard and so present and he he just held my hand really firmly for about I don't know 20-30 minutes I don't know how long it was but I was so shocked because I thought all of that was done and finished you know so I suppose that's part of what we don't know with the grey yeah do you know yeah you wrote about that would you read that poem I, I, I will I will if I can if I can find it um Communication. Yeah. The next to last time you spoke to me, you used rough words to tell me to be gone. The last time that you spoke to me, you were in your second day of traveling on. You opened your eyes and seemed amazed that I was there. Come here, you said. And so I stood beside your head. I rubbed your hair and kissed your cheeks and brow. Then you settled down and slipped back into the grey. Two days before you died, all your words were gone. I sat by your bed. I sang. I prayed. I read. I was lost in the words of some poem or another, which when your hand which I'd thought would move no more, slid across the bed and fastened onto mine. 
For an hour, you held my hand so firmly that your fingers marked my skin. Then you let go and pulled away again. Who was Brendan for you, Mary? Um, <laughs> Brendan was a butterfly, actually, for me. You know, um, he was... My memory of Brendan as a child is his outrageousness, his, his intelligence and his outrageousness. Um, he was a really fun uncle. He was, you know, he really was. Um, he would curse at people that we regarded as very stern and severe. And he would make, uh, like my, my maternal grandfather, I hardly ever saw him laugh. Brendan could make him throw his head back and belly laugh. And then I suppose as I grew older, I became conscious of the uh, public, Brendan, and, and his writing. Um, but it was, it, it was very much, our relationship was still rooted in the child and the, and the adult. Um, it was really when I grew, was in my 30s or so, we began to work together on various different things. Um, and then that, that sparked a completely new relationship. And that was a very nice relationship because it was, um, you know, it was, it was a relationship of two people, you know, it, it was in our arts, um, I, I ran the Brennan or I was involved, I was the artistic director with the Brennan Kennelly Summer Festival for a number of years or would have been involved in different things. He would have um, given certain advice to me when I started writing, which I think is good advice, um, even still. Um, Sometimes I, I, I would say Brendan depresses me because I'll, I'll read, um, you know, especially if I go to um, an event where people are reading some of Brendan's older poems or poems I haven't read in a very long time. And I think, oh, my God, why did I waste my time? He said it all before me and he said it's so much better than I can say it. And, um, and then he, he was somebody who needed care. And literally, um, and he was somebody who needed care, maybe at a time that I wasn't as free with my care. I, I didn't, you know, we already, I already had John. Um, I was working full time. I had my own kids. Um, I'd, I'd been helping to look after my, my father-in-law and then my mother-in-law and then my husband had a foster uncle. So, I mean, I, I you know, I was, I was quite involved with other people. And when Brendan came, first of all, um, I didn't foresee how involved I would be, um, but what are you going to do? <laughs> he was my, he was my mm -hmm. uncle and I loved him. And, but but th those five years when he was down, now I look back and I see how precious they were. And I see that we got to build yet another relationship in that time. Mm. And like, that's quite a burden of care you had on your shoulders. And in one of the poems for today, you say, look at the two of us, it's little enough, but we don't ask for more. And it's like, that's the last line. It's like this shrunken world that can happen when yeah. we're caring for other people. Um, the world and society can feel so far away. How, how did you cope, Mary? How is your mental health through all of this giving to other people? And It was not easy. 
I would say that. And certainly by the time Brendan was dying, I remember um, being on the phone to, to a cousin um, who was very involved, who, who did probably more with Brendan, definitely more with Brendan than, than I was doing. But we were great support to each other. I have another cousin who's looking after her father who has dementia. And um, we were really a club. You know, we did help each other. We understood the pain of what was going on. Um, and, and it was wonderful in that way. But but I, I mean, I remember talking to Bridget and saying, I don't know how much longer I can do this. I don't know, you know, and there was that sense with both of them. Um, I always say about John and Brendan, they weren't lucky enough to die from anything else. In actual fact, they died from dementia, which is not a nice uh, way to go. And a lot of people are spared that because something else will kick in, you know, yeah. uh, and they and they had both had very bad hearts. So we had kind of hoped that, that maybe the hearts would give out or um, they weren't lucky enough to die from anything mm. else other than dementia, um, which is very slow and wasting and withering. And um, the lighter moments fade away and it gets to the point where it's really hard. Um, and and I suppose, I, I won't say that I found it easy. I know a time came for both of them when I just, in so much as I prayed, I just said, can they just go, please? Can this be enough? And, and I would feel guilty feeling that way, but I wasn't just talking about for me. I was looking at what I was doing to my dad, to my mm. aunt. I was looking at what it was doing to, to myself and my cousin. I was looking at what I was doing to Brenda and mm. to John. And certainly for both of them, a time came when I thought, this is enough. Can, can this be enough, please? Yeah. Can this end? And so it's a really funny thing when you grieve for somebody like that. And I know I address it in some of the poems there, that in actual fact, how could you be grieving for somebody that it's such a release that they're not here anymore, yeah. that you couldn't wish they would be here anymore? So you're not grieving for the physical presence of them you grieve for the emotional presence of them that's yeah. that's the best way that I can put it yeah absolutely and you actually you write about that about the guilt of you know essentially wishing that they would die before yeah. they do um you know a, a, an act of love really but I think so much of our society today it's about prolonging life but as I say often in podcasts, we prolong death in most cases. Yeah. Like we're not prolonging yeah. life, we're prolonging dying for what? And sometimes yeah. that's really important. Yeah. If there's young mothers that want to make more memories with their children and they will buy three more months if they can, even though it's painful or difficult. Um, but that's not always the case either. Like sometimes we just prolong death and and it can be cruel in some cases. Yeah. I, I know with Father John, and it's just such a strong memory and it's such a painful memory for me. Um, he had had, how, you know, we, we, we did whatever we had to do. We went to the courts and things to sort it with Brendan, but he'd had his pacemaker battery replaced about a year before he died. Um, or a year or two and, and that's what I remember I remember him being essentially dead and this metronome beating in his chest and and the 
you know, everybody just looking, realizing that this was such an unnecessary cruelty mm. to 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 put him through. You know, so I I I do feel that there is a discussion that we have to have at some point mm. when we're mature enough to have it, I guess, yeah. around. Um, and, and, and I very much see for me, there are differences between actively ending somebody's life and unnecessarily prolonging somebody's life. They're two yeah. very different things. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. When he got his pacemaker, when he was very, very ill and dying. He said a he year had, before he died. But... Yeah, he'd had it. He had his battery replaced in his pacemaker. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Do you know? Um, and like, I was so I found it traumatic. I'll be like, I, that yeah. is my one of the big memories of that last week, and certainly the last few days, is just watching and just saying, you know, he was gone. We knew he was yeah. gone. Um, in other ways, his his he had you know he, he was breaking down and and things like that but mm. watching this metronome beating which wasn't his heart in actual fact which was this battery and thinking yeah. how long can a battery keep going when there's nothing else there do you know and and you think it was the battery that kept going it's no question or doubt in my mind now wow. you know i'm not a i'm not a medic yeah um but but he was gone you know or he was gone yeah. beyond where it was right for him not to be gone where it was you know mm-hmm. um and i just i suppose for, for me when i look at death i think there something organic does happen i i don't know how to to put this into words and i'm not here to evangelize or anything like that but but you, you witness when you're privileged enough to be with people who are dying, some process happening. Mm. Um, and, and for me, it, I, I, it feels like they move on or they make a conscious choice at some point or, you know. Um, and I, I feel that Father John's process was interfered with just mm. by that fact not maliciously on anybody's part mm. not you know but I think like when are we going to be mature enough to discuss mm. whether or not and and I know I would be so clear my poor children <laughs> are quite um you know they grew up if you like listening to me saying you better not do that to me yeah. you better you know I don't want this yeah. Um, so we grew like my kids as teenagers listened to their mom, and I don't know how good or bad that is. Yeah, but sitting around the kitchen table saying, "Don't do that to me. It's, I don't want that." I'm curious, Mary, because one of the last things I googled while Dad was alive was, "Can a pacemaker keep your heart beating when you're dead?" I actually googled that on March sixth in the morning, which was hours before he died, and. Like that, you know, I, and I've seen a few people die. I've been privileged to be at, at a friend and my mother's um, bed when they were dying by their side. But with dad, it was just like that. It was like he was dead. He, he was like a corpse, almost like rigor mortis had set mm-hmm. in and just this heart beating like a mechanic. Yeah. And it, I was like, Jesus, is there a battery we need to take out here? Because literally that is what it looked like. And yeah. You know, uh, a friend of mine, she's uh, Dr. Catherine Mannix. She's been on the podcast a few times. She'd been texting me, just checking in. And I remember texting her that morning going, Catherine, is there a switch? 
tell me is there a switch and it was you know I had spent three weeks there so present um to him and with him and by his side and so similar to what you described Mary kissing him Mm -hmm. and stroking his forehead and stroking his hair but on that day I was just like I just want to put a pillow over him this this is so prolonged and is this natural this doesn't feel right and yeah so I don't know I mean if anyone's listening I don't know if if medically that's possible or not but it's curious that we both had that same feeling yeah and and I will say one thing it is so difficult actually just to touch back on something you mentioned which is when a niece or a nephew find themselves looking after there was no question um Father John had fallen a number of times and ended up in A&E and things like that. And um, I I would have been very um, upset by how he was treated, by how a very vulnerable man with dementia was treated in in A&E at different times. And I remember discussing with the nursing home going and saying, look, if you think he has broken a bone, okay, call me and I'll meet him in A&E. But other than that, put him in his bed and make him comfortable and and don't put him through this if it's and because it was obvious in one way that I I was and my aunt was with me actually when we had the discussion with them and they knew we were the people looking after him and they were very respectful around that but um it's a really gray area actually for nieces and nephews I wasn't his next of kin. I wasn't his daughter. I wasn't, you know, and it can be really hard trying to make those difficult decisions around care and around um, those kinds of things. Should a pacemaker battery be replaced, for example? Um, can does does the family does a family member have a right to say, no, I don't believe you'd have wanted that. You know, and and I, I think there's a massive discussion. Probably you asked me, how am I affected mentally? Well, definitely one of the ways I'm affected is that I I I think everyone, everyone of my age and <laughs> should be looking at the thinking ahead document and filling it out and writing very clearly so that when their children are in that situation, that they don't have to second guess. Is this I, the Think Ahead program from think the Irish ahead, Hospice yeah, Foundation? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I just I think it's a wonderful document. I mm. I don't know what legal status it ha- holds, but I think if you had it in a nursing home or in a hospital and if you're an obvious next of kin and you can say, look, that's her handwriting. This yeah. is what she wanted or he wanted. Um, and I think we should all be doing it because yeah. unfortunately, medical science, I think, has maybe outstripped our ability to just easily let go. You know, when I hear of of very elderly people getting aggressive chemo or getting, you know, it's it's really hard. I understand that position doctors and nurses are in. I understand how I very much understand the position carers are in. Um, and so I think we need to have a discussion around how we can do death a little bit better in those circumstances. Yeah, for sure. You consciously turned towards your two uncles and stepped into care for them. What was that like personally? I mean, you, you say there you had a father-in-law who was ill. You've got three children. You're working. Something yeah. in you consciously or unconsciously, I don't know, turned towards these men 
and and decided I'm going to be available for them. Um, the decision the process was different for both, as I say, with Father John, it was never a question. Like we had been extremely close always, and he really was. Um, you know, he, he was like another father to me, really. You know, we, we were close. I was his favourite. He had no bones about letting the world know I was his favourite. You know, it's very hard not to love somebody who lets everybody know you are their favourite. <laughs> and uh, with Brendan, it was it was a more gradual process. Did it cost something? Yeah, it did cost something. Um, it did. And caring for all of the people that I have cared for in my life has cost something. But I suppose it wasn't something I could say no to. I don't, I'm not making, you know, I'm not an angel here. And there were lots of days I was tired and cranky. And um, there was sometimes there were weeks and I was just, I cannot do it this week. Um, yeah. I, you know, I just can't. I need to take it's a week so off here. It's so important to say because we'd be doing such a disservice to people listening who are, you know, on their knees yeah. caring for someone. Yeah. It would be a disservice to make it look like it's this beautiful thing that you no. go through with someone you love and then you produce a book of poetry at the end of it. Mm. You know, <laughs> and, and I think that's a great expression on your knees. I felt on my knees yeah. for long periods of time. And and I was desperate for it to end and to be over and I did wonder and I say that loving the, the two men involved but it was horrendously painful for everyone involved horrendously painful um and so I produced this book of poetry maybe because I, I think I wrote the book of poetry because I wasn't going to be able to write anything else until this was done this is my catharsis. This is my way of dealing with it. Um, I might have published it for different reasons, but I wrote it out of compulsion, really, yeah. you know, as my well, way you, of sorting things you, out. You said in one of the poems, it's like you had no memory of the um, the other versions of them um, yeah. in the midst of the grief. And I think that's so true. It's like we have to really process the death and the loss and the dying and the yeah. anticipatory grief, all of those things to be able to then access the whole person. And I remember for me, and I did, this didn't quite seem to happen for you, but it also kind of did. Um, I can see a process for you through the, through the book. But for me, like I was really close to my dad, you know, and he was fun and he was my go to person and mm. he wasn't really wise like your uncle. So I'm totally jealous of that. But he was there and he would yeah. be present and he cared and he was loving and he'd follow up, even if he didn't have amazing words of wisdom or even if he did, I wouldn't have listened. Um, but I lost that bit by bit, you know, over maybe a five, six year period to the point that it was so gradual, it was like this gradual thing melting mm -hmm. away that I'd almost, for I had forgotten. And it was only when he died and then say school friends or people I haven't been in touch with for a few years reflected to me what he meant to me. They were like, mm -hmm. oh my God, your dad, I'm so sorry. I know he meant the world to you. And you were always, he was always in your house. You're always so close. And it was like this flood came back. I got mm -hmm. him back. In death I got that back you know would you speak to that because you've written a little bit about that I had a I have, question for yeah. you and then I wrote then I read your poem on it 
Yeah, I, I mean, I have. There, there were two things I'll speak to about that. The, the first is so. that I found it desperately painful during the process. Again, because the two boys had been public um, to different degrees, I mean, in many ways, in, in Kerry, Father John was better known than Brendan because he had been a, a parish priest um, in so many parishes. But um, because they were public, sometimes out of tremendous kindness, people would come and say, oh, I found this picture or oh, I found it was excoriatingly painful. There was no other way for me to do what I was doing except put my head down, look at my feet and take one step at a time. I mean, I just existed day by day. And I mean, there are poems in there about I didn't know who I'd find each day, about having to just accept, you know, that poem that you referenced. Look at the two of us. It's little enough, but it's enough, you know, having to accept that. But the other thing is, um, and, and here, this, this is a little bit unique. I mean, um, the day that Brendan died, um, Bridget and I were in the car just after he died. My, my mom and dad had come in and her mom had come in. They were in the room with him and we were sitting in the car. Now, we had known that he was dying and we had like a mass kind of hammered out and we had all those practical things because we knew we had to do, you know, we were so much more organized the second time than the first time. But anyway, and, and suddenly we remembered or realized because he had shrunk, he was very tiny when he died, um, that we didn't have a shirt. And we, where were we going to get a shirt? And we were kind of discussing where we were going to, who's had a child that would have a white shirt that might fit Brendan. And because uh, he died on a Sunday. And, um, but uh, the phone rang and it was Pascal Sheehy. Um, it was such a bizarre thing, you know? So we're discussing the absolute mundane things that every family has to discuss and then there's rte looking for a comment you know and the first thing that came into my head was how in the name of god do they know we're still trying to make sure everybody in the family knew but um and then that night i i or that evening i when everybody's gone i just went back down to the room and i spent a little bit of time with him and he was as i say very tiny um and then i went home and there was a clip on the RTE news of him. Oh, his beautiful big round face and his massive laugh and the head thrown back. And, and I had no way to recognize one from the other. There was a complete disconnect. I did not recognize the man. So much had been taken in such a gradual chip, chip, chipping away. I didn't know who the man, he was a stranger. He was not the man I had left that day. And I think that's something that happens with dementia. And I think part of the healing that happens with dementia, part of the way you know you're healing is when you can actually look again at the happier times and remember again the happier people. And the, in my case, the, the giants that I, I had known. Yeah. And it's so much of what you describe, Mary, is it resonates so deeply, that bird-like mm. creature in the bed, you know, yeah. um, like like that. My father was a rugby player in his day. And and yeah. and the here and and 
you know, this doesn't happen for everyone, but this is such a part of life. And, you know, you mentioned that in your book as well, that this is, we don't reduce them to how they died or how they are, how we are when we die. It's a chapter or a, a, a line in a poem, you know? Yeah. And um, what yeah. are your words? What words did you put on that? Do you know the one I'm referencing? Uh, I do, this... and I'm pretty sure it's, it's called After, isn't it? Um, no. Uh... Hindsight. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. Um, do you want me to read that one That's for you? That's the last one. Please do. Yeah. yeah. Tied up and blinded as I was in the decay of your last years and months and days. I had forgotten the you you were before. In those first days and weeks of after. I was caught off guard by the shards of sound and story of the younger you. They clashed with the raw reality of the men I'd said my goodbyes to. It took a while, but slowly I began to reconcile the older and the younger men. And then such a swell of pride came sweeping in for all the things that you had said and done. And love, yes, I suppose we'll call it that. My feelings not tamed, but tempered by knowing the road on which you've gone. Beautiful. Mary, there's one called Loss, where you write about somebody grieving in the third person. That's actually my aunt. Um, mm. I, I went out to visit her uh, and she and Brendan were exceptionally close. And she just, I think we all of us hit a wall at some point we all of us hit a day that we just felt we couldn't go on so this was her day on that day the laughter would not come there was no chink through which it could seep in leaving her alone and shivering in stark reality her tears and tears and tears came then she cried for all that had been taken she cried for all that had been lost she cried because death was all that could be wished for now that living carried such an unbearable cost. Is there anything that surprised you about grief? After you said that after Brendan died, you finally grieved both men. And I think it's important to say that actually, um, the last guest that I just interviewed as well has said something similar. Her daughter died and in the aftermath, she's been so ill that she hasn't had a chance to properly grieve her daughter um, four years later. And this is quite common, you know, that often mm. we just, we're getting through, if we're, if there's distractions or other things going on, we can't, we don't all have the luxury of being able to grieve well, um, no, whatever that no. might look like. So you were saying I think grief for both takes, of them came. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, I should say that I became ill, actually. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I became quite ill um and 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 am not working now because I, I still am just managing an illness that I developed while I was minding them you know and I think sometimes when the grief is so profound I think our body um our body pays the price Oh, yeah. because our mind sometimes can't go there I don't I don't know if that is the case but I think it does happen um well we don't process grief through our mind 
yeah it's yeah, we are mammals you know yeah, we're mammals yeah. and we i love, think our body does yeah. pay a price yeah. you know um and and there is a price to be paid and i i know there's another poem in there um which i, I wrote for father john and it's literally just acknowledging and i think this is true about grief and this is something i have learned we are entirely different from the person we have been before um, I'm, I'm we, looking for that. Yeah, you, the word you use is I'm altered. Isn't that the I'm word altered. you use? I'm altered. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. I took um, a note of that. Uh, and we are. And we are very much. It's called here. Here, page 41. Here, yeah. <laughs> um, our always and our everything have led me on to here. Our story, twisting and soaring, tragic and serene. Because there was an us, I will be different as I travel on. Since the grey, without a sliver of mercy, came to call and took our everything away. I am different now, less certain, my tethers less secure. From the outside, I don't think it can be known how I am recast by all that you and I went through how you were always here inside me, how I have been made anew. And, and I think that is what I have learned about grief. Mm. That and the fact that people, um, that, that we do a lot of talking about grief as a society, and we, be, we, we are intolerant. I think there's a sell-by date on grief. Um, years ago, I, I wrote a poem called Humpty Dumpty for my aunt who kind of fell apart when her husband died. Uh, and people understand it for a while. And then they're like, come on, pull yourself together. Um, and I think each time we go through, we're tempered in that way, are tested in that way. We are just different people. There is no going back to who we are before we knew that level of grief. Yeah, definitely. And I said altered, but the word you used was recast. Recast. Somehow recast, I, I kept yeah. altered in my head. Yeah. Yeah, that it's, it's, we, you know, the people think that grief is a process we go through with the beginning, a middle and an end, and then we're back yeah. to normal. But when we have a profound loss, it does alter us. It's, we yeah. have to change to accommodate our loss. We have to grow, fall apart, break open, whatever, whatever mm. way we do it mm. to be able to find space for that grief inside us. Um, because our person is never undead you know no but no, there's something and... there there's something there you say Mary um I'm different now less certain my tethers less secure and it's it's so incredible because it is like I study grief right I'm a grief trainer mm -hmm. a grief educator I have a master's in bereavement studies you know I've studied the great John Bowlby and attachment style and you are saying all the same stuff just in the language of poetry you know um it's you know the attachment theory is mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. the, the Bowlby and John Murray Parks noticed that toddlers when they're pulled away from their caregiver mm -hmm. their mother have this they're they're untethered they're you know they cry yeah. they want them back I need them to feel okay again and yeah. they notice that people who are grieving 
it makes sense, have a, a similar mm -hmm. attachment. Mm -hmm. And when someone we love is pulled away, we just want them back. We were untethered, you know. Yeah. And these attachments, yeah. these relationships regulate us. And you grew up in this family of, I don't know how many thousand people <laughs> are, are in your close family, but it's something yeah. that's taken so for granted when you're in it, just that these people are there like the trees. And yeah. it's only when the trees yeah. begin to fall do we start to feel the nakedness maybe of our own being on the world? And yeah. would you speak a little bit about that, these great trees falling around you? Actually, these... it's, it's such a nice phrase to use. My father-in-law, who I was really fond of, used to say the shelter belt is getting thin. That's uh -huh. how he did. He was one of a big family. And when, as his brothers and sisters began to die, he said, my shelter belt is getting thin. And, and for me, that's kind of what it's like. And I don't think it necessarily needs to be family. I think as humans, we seek connection and we create our own forests, if you like, you know, we, we um, and as we part with those people, um, certain things happen as the outer trees grow thin we become the outer trees and that's actually a very a funny thing I find I I look at my nieces and nephews now and I have squillions of them <laughs> and uh, uh, I look at them looking at me in the same way that I looked at my uncles and aunts you know um it might be something as small as me helping them fill out a CAO form or it might be something, you know, but, you know, they, they look and they assume a wisdom and they and the funny thing is when I'm in these boots, I don't feel particularly wise. I don't feel particularly accomplished or finished. Um, I still think I'm searching and trying to be the person that I'm meant to be. Um, but I, I just think there is an intergenerational thing that happens. And I suppose for me, and, and I, I know it comes to attachment style or um, I suppose we are created and molded by the people and the events of, in our lives. And so therefore losing a person to me is as profound as losing a limb. Or, you know, you, you lose part of what makes you you mm. um, and you now have to adapt and find a new way to be yourself in the absence of that person, even when that person leaves a profound legacy to you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's so true. And I think where we can get really stuck is when we look back and go, what is the world now without them? As opposed to who do I now have to become now yeah. that they're not there? And it's funny, I'm laughing here because we all think we're so unique and we are so beautiful and unique, but we have such similar thoughts as well. Mm. I had a thought today, you know, and I think like, I'm, I'm sure it was triggered by your book. And it's like, when the trees are all gone, like in my case, I've no aunt, I have one aunt left on my father's side, yeah. but they're, they're all gone. There's no option but to become that tree <laughs> for the next generation rather than yeah. who's going to save me now. It's like, yeah, no one's coming. You know, yeah. who's coming. And actually, you've got to turn and look at the little ones and offer them, you know, shelter, yeah. shelter. And in your case, uh, you know, a fraction of what you were given. In my case, a lot more than what, what was available to mm -hmm. me. But yeah, that's that's our option is 
do I crumble or do I become the tree and and pass on that legacy? Um, I always remember looking at my father and an aunt. She used to visit a lot when we were young, and uh, they, they would be in the kitchen talking and. After a while, my father would say, get out now, go out and play outside, get out, go on, go on, we're talking here. And I have such a clear memory of thinking, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to have really important things to talk about all day long. That's how I know when I'm an adult. I'm still waiting. So, you know, I'm waiting for that sense. So I think that's the big, that's the, the, that's the fallacy, isn't it? That, that the, the people we looked at as completed and formed human beings, now we are being looked at in that light. And yet from inside, we know, yeah, no, I've got a lot to learn yet. I just yeah. hope I have time to learn it all, you know. I'm still growing up. I'm still trying yes. to figure out this, this being human thing. And, you know, I think the older I get, I hit 50 in March this year. It's like, it's just not going to happen, Liz, actually. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. And I think the growing up is actually accepting our humanity and, yeah. you know, our weaknesses yeah. and our, you know, fallibility and all of that. I'm um, laughing because I was 50 a uh, year and a half ago. And actually, that's what I'm working on now is a whole series of uh, poems, which I'm hoping to, I don't know if it'll uh, be a book, but I'm hoping to work with artists, female artists mm -hmm. of around the same age like on this whole thing of, well, I'm 50 now, am I supposed to just die or be old or something like that? Where's my place in the world while I'm still yeah. trying to figure things out? So that's why I'm, I'm just laughing at, at, at you saying exactly what I'm, I'm thinking myself, you know, how do we yeah. find who we are? And it's the story through the ages, you know, of youth is wasted on the young, you know, we, we spend our youth wishing we look different or were different or were with someone different or, and then we finally accept our lot. It's like, God, now I've lost all the youth <laughs> that I so desperately didn't, you know, reject it for so many yeah. decades. But it's almost like there's no way around it, but to go through that. And it's yeah. like, no matter what we teach, it's still, it's like grief. We can't fully understand it until we're sitting there with our belly shaking, you know, or on our knees. Yeah. It's one of those experiences that is so embodied that unless we're in the body feeling it, it's it's hard to get our, our, our heads around. But I think poetry is such a beautiful way of, you know, giving other people at least a taste of maybe what's to come. And although if maybe some people haven't experienced this yet, you know, they read this book and then go, that's what she meant. Mm. Or that's what, you know, yeah. that's what that line meant. Now I'm living yeah. it, now I understand. Cause you refer to the youth's bored learning your poems or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it means nothing when it's not in your reality. Yeah, you know? yeah. Or when you, uh, that's a, a kind of a left, Brendan had a, uh, he was so delighted when, he's, when he was, um, his poems were put on the honours course in the Leaving Cert. Um, and if anybody is out there who's had to study his poems, it's worth it. You've no idea how happy you made that man. Uh. <laughs> he, was, he was so <laughs> delighted. Um, but at, he, he was delighted, but at the same time, he'd always felt that poetry should be something that you can understand without a huge amount of um, analysis. You know, he didn't want his poetry to be obscure. I, I don't want my poetry to be obscure, actually. I can't really see the point in writing it unless yeah. it can mean something 
to people, yeah. you know. Um, and uh, so he was caught there between that kind of a thing that, yes, his poetry is on the leanings, of course, but now people are going to be trying to dis dissect it and uh, explain it when all he wanted was people to get it, to feel it, you know. What do you want for this book, Into the Grey? Um, um, this book was very much, uh, this was my thank you because they couldn't say thank you anymore. So this book was my thank you to the two nursing homes. I'm really glad all the publishing costs and everything have been met. So everything, anyone who buys this book now, the whole lot of it is going to the nursing homes, which is, um, and I think I really wanted, I, I wanted to do two things with this book. One, I wanted the people who looked after John and Brendan and the people who work in every nursing home and who actually, it's a hard job. It's a hard job when you're dealing with older people who are not uh, rational or not doing very well and are demanding. It's hard to keep going in there and doing it really well. So I, I felt that somebody needed to say, you're amazing. If you, if you go in and do that job, this is an amazing job and it's unseen and it's um I think John McDonald was talking about his kids talking about how much footballers are paid per week and he was thinking how much the carers who look after his dad are paid per week so we have our kind of priorities skewed a bit mm -hmm. I think these people look after the most precious resource mm -hmm. that we have um, but I think the second thing was um that when that somebody who is living through this and who who is struggling because as I say I spent a lot of time on my knees while this mm. was going on um I, I think if you read the book I don't mean to make it seem pretty or beautiful or it was it was brutal at, yeah. yeah it was brutal at times it was also beautiful <laughs> you know but it was brutal and I just I love the idea that if somebody was going through it or had recently gone through it, they would find something mm. and they would say somebody out there in the world gets what I was going through. It's it's honestly such a gift. And when I like I sat down just to pick out a few poems this morning that I'd be able to reference with you, I read the entire thing cover to cover. And after I'd read Hindsight, which is the last poem, while well, you, you have your thank you there at the end, I immediately flicked to the front. I was like, oh, please, may she have signed it for me, you know? <laughs> um, and I was so delighted that it was that it was signed. But it's a book about anticipatory grief. It's a book about dementia. Yeah. It's a book about ambiguous loss. It's a book about love. Um, it's a book about service. And the, you know, being of service to each other in life. Um, it's it's absolutely beautiful. I love the cover actually, Mary. I wanted to ask you who designed that and 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 what's to be read from it, or or, or is it up to everyone um, to it, 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 that was actually themselves? that was well, I, I think everyone can see it as they want to see it. Um, but it was, and I'm very grateful. I have a great team around me. Um yeah. I have uh I have had the same graphic designer work on pretty much all of my work, Tom Moore. Um, Rebecca Carl, who I did a book with, my first book was with Rebecca, actually. I've worked with artists on a number of books. Um, and I was talking to her about it and she had known John and Brendan and she said, I would really like to do a painting for you. 
you don't have to use it if you don't want. Um, and, and while this seems to have all that color, in fact, she made it using only primary colors to blend gray. Um, and there's, there's, you know, the, the passage of the books, which almost looks like a tomb up above. I mean, books were massive in both John and Brendan's life. There's also a sense to which it's it's shut, it's it's stoppered. Um, the, the little panel underneath it, in fact, means an awful lot to me, because if, if you look at, you can actually that these this white here, there are two figures. Um, Brendan always wore a scarf. He was quite debonair. And if you have a look at one of those two figures, he's got his scarf on. So that's that. Brendan and John's behind him. And then the lovely thing is the fact that that dark grey, that's a door. There's a doorknob on that if you go looking. So the boys are travelling to somewhere rather than to nowhere. Um, so I, I, I just love what she did for me in this. And then the, the other person who was super was my own editor, um, who, whose grandmother, and I, I didn't know that, but his grandmother had died of dementia, who was somebody he really loved. And so Dennis, my is my editor, and, and he just got it. You know, we work, he's a great editor, um, and I know the book is better, actually, because he would, I mean, I love writing. I'm incredibly lazy when it comes to editing and rewriting. And he just kept on in my case. Come on, you can do better. You can say this better. Um, wow. And so it helped. Yeah. And you mentioned him, I think, in the forward and read that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, I know a lot, a lot of listeners would buy the books when they've listened to a podcast episode. And, you know, maybe you're not caring for someone with dementia or Alzheimer's, but this is a book you know, that although this is about your uncles and their dementia and you're caring for them, any most of us have experienced some sort of disenfranchised grief, some sort of ambiguous loss, or we will, you know, a loss that is not recognized enough by society, or we have relationships that people don't fully understand how much we've lost when that person has died or gone away. Um, and you capture the human condition around loss and grief so very, very beautifully. It moved me to tears for a, an hour or so. Um, and it certainly brought me right back to what I have lost as well in, in recent months. There's so much more I wanted to talk to you about, you know, COVID and the phone and letting all the relatives say goodbye. And mm. um, there's just so, so much in this book. Um, I will definitely read it again. And I'm sure I'll use it in my teachings. I teach, you know, the Irish Hospice Foundation and a few other organisations. Absolutely, so. feel free. Yeah. Um, I, what I might do is I might send you the link. If anybody is interested in buying it, um, they can buy it directly from the nursing homes, which I would really like because then oh, the nursing fantastic. homes get all of the money. Yeah. So Oris Vera have it on their website and they have a link. It's just like buying it from Amazon or whatever. Yeah. They can buy it directly if they want to write and if they want it signed, I'll come and scroll it for them. Um, uh, and I might send you the link for that or they can just Oris Vera Nursing Home, they'll find it. They mightn't because there's a lot of international listeners. So what I'm okay. so I go to the podcast description either on shapesofgrief.com or on Anchor, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. 
I will have a link to where you can buy that book and um, let's definitely buy it direct from the nursing homes, everybody. It's really beautiful. It's you can, uh, do you know what is so lovely about this? You can read it in an hour, <laughs> maybe not to be recommended, more about like picking it up, reading a couple, putting it down. But it's the first book I've read cover to cover in quite a while. And um, so there was a lovely sense of accomplishment as well. And always, always lovely to just, you know, be touched and have emotions stirred and to be alive again and remembering love and loss. So thank you for that, Mary. Thank you so much, Liz. Yeah, look, it's been an absolutely gorgeous conversation. Thanks so much for coming on to Shapes of Grief. Lovely to meet you. Yeah, good luck with it. All right, thank you so much. Take care, Mary. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. And if your grief is making you unwell, please do see your healthcare provider. Once again, please consider supporting the podcast by donating on shapesofgrief.com or becoming a patron on patreon.com. I rely on your support to keep going. The music is performed by Baca Beyond, especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from Miles Gleason, take really good care.